if any of you may have dozed off during the uh, early morning announcements, let me assure you that it's not as bad as it appears. You have not slept through the first and second period. <laughs> this is the first period. Uh, yesterday we finished off talking about um, the uh, fire from the Lord falling upon the sacrifice that Elijah had uh, set up, and we were in First Kings, um, <clears throat> in First Kings, chapter uh, seventeen, and we were considering the way the words were constructed in verse thirty-eight. Sorry, First Kings eighteen, verse thirty-eight. And uh, something that seems different from lightning or a heating up of the wood occurred, and from heaven fire fell and burned up everything with more energy uh, released than the wood only would ever have provided because uh, of the way everything, as we see there, was consumed. Uh, and the order of consumption that we talked about was uh, of interest. It seems, by the way it reads, that it was from the top down, uh, showing that, you know, the wood in that whole process was more or less superfluous. It didn't matter. Uh, it was burning from the top down where it would have uh, come to the sacrifice uh, first rather than the wood. And, and so that order of the way it's written is, is of interest. So I just throw out to you the question that's sort of obvious, and you may have, many of you may have thought of it already. Do you remember anything else that happened uh, from the top to the bottom that could have only been done by God? Sure. The... Uh, renting of the veil in the temple at the time of Christ's death. Uh, and there's a similar parallel thought here. Now in verse 38, at the end of it, where the uh, people bowed down and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. They were saying something similar to Elijah, Elijah. Do you remember what Elijah's name meant? Um, my God is Yahweh. My God is Yahweh. Is, is Elijah. Elijah is not quite the same. And don't, I don't think we should ever take the perspective that they were cheering Elijah, Elijah. Uh, they were showing uh, respect for and praise for God. But the expressions are very similar. Uh, in the way they would say, the Lord, he is God, as well as Elijah. So they seized the 450 prophets of Baal, took them down to the base of the mountain. Uh, whoa. You know what it feels like when you go in, into a bright room out of a dark room? Uh, they took them down to Kishon, the river, and, uh, and there slew them. Now, it's perfectly focused for all the rest of us. <laughs> you are right. It isn't a great map, and I think that's more the problem than your eyes. Uh, I don't know that I can get it much better than that. I do have another map. And that one might be more clear. And it also has Kishon on it right there. So maybe we'll try that. Uh, so it's kind of the reversal of the tables, isn't it? Uh, Jezebel had killed many of the prophets of the Lord earlier, and now the tables were reversed. And we know the rest 
of that day because we've come to know this this event fairly well. Uh, Elijah paid, prayed and it rained a great rain. And so it appears as a result of all that that Elijah was really over-optimistically buoyed up uh, by his success. Uh, you know, knowing that the people had turned and said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Uh, and he kind of felt that Ahab had too. Well, had he? Um, I think, as we'll see, Ahab still kind of halted between two opinions, as we read in verse 21. Uh, now, Ahab had to get back home, at least to one of his homes, his palatial places. Uh, that was about 18 miles to go from where they were back to Jezreel, where one of their homes was, and that's where, as well, Jezebel was, his wife. And we understand from verse 46 of this chapter that Elijah was strengthened, and he was able to run those 18 miles. Uh, and by the way, what time of day do you think he ran it? If when he had even when he had started into his process of the sacrifice, it was sometime around the evening sacrifice. And then they killed all the prophets of Baal. And then they had something to eat. At least Ahab had. And then he prayed. And seven times they went and looked for something out over the ocean. Don't you think it was dark by that time? So it's hard enough to run 18 miles, but would you like to run it in the dark? Uh, and it sounds to me like that's, that's what happened. Um, so the way it may read there is that... Um, some may think that he outran Ahab's chariot, beat him back. Well, I don't really think that's probably the intention. And if we go back to 1 Kings, uh, in the uh, first chapter, there's an example of when Adonijah tried to seize the throne from David. 1 Kings 1 and 5. Sorry. Yeah, that's where I am. And Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared him chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. 50 men to run in front of him, just like an entourage when you see uh, heads of state come into Washington or something. And they have this big entourage of vehicles uh, and giving him honor and and so on. Well, I think that's what Elijah was doing for Ahab, um, running ahead of the king who he felt now had been converted and who he probably could now respect and maybe work with him. I think he was mistaken, though. Um, so they came to Jezreel, that pretty city, and, and he didn't go in. Elijah didn't go in. He stayed outside. And so then we pick up in chapter 19 of how uh, the discussion went between Jezebel and Ahab. And we see by Ahab's words there that, you know, he really wasn't as converted maybe as, as Elijah had hoped. And in the presence of Jezebel, that strong character, he chose his words carefully. Interesting to watch how, how the words come out here. He says, you know, Elijah had slain all the prophets. He didn't clarify it by saying, 
the prophets of Baal. He just said he, he slayed all the prophets. Uh, and that Im implies, in a sense, that there are prophets. Uh, if he'd said the prophets of Baal, then he would have been sounding to her, to Jezebel, that he was putting himself kind of arm's length from those prophets of Baal, I think. And, uh, and even maybe that he agreed with their destruction. So he was kind of still halting between two opinions, I think. Uh, vacillating a bit, depending on who he was with. Have you ever seen that among us? or in the world around us, depending on who they're with, people change their, what is it, they call it, they're like a chameleon. They, under certain circumstances, they behave this way, and under certain other environments, they behave that way. Uh, well, I think there's a less, lesson for us here, too. Um, well, you can imagine Jezebel's reaction, powerful reaction. And so she might have asked, probably did, something like, so uh, where's Elijah now? Where's Elijah now? Oh, oh, he, uh, he's just outside the city. He just ran ahead of me in front of my chariot all the way back from, from Mount Carmel. Oh, really? Excuse me. Thank you very much. I've got some business to take care of right now. Uh... And, uh, and so Elijah's great feelings, I think, of uh, satisfaction and his over-optimism, maybe, were turned around very quickly when Jezebel's message came out to him just outside the city. And in effect, she said, you know, let me be dead. Uh, if I don't have you killed within 24 hours. And that really scared him. Uh, you know, from the heights of great feeling to the depths of despair. Um, and as Brother Tucker mentioned yesterday, um, his hope, his hope was, was dashed. And so he fled the country. Uh, left his servant behind in the nation of, of Judah and went to Horeb. Uh, and there God rebuilt his confidence and his hope. Now, I have uh, here uh, there we go, a little map, another one that may be a little light showing some of the distance. In fact, we can't even see off the top of it, but way up there north of Bethel was where he started out and came all the way down and eventually ended up at Mount Horeb or, uh, or Sinai. Uh, quite the long distance through uh, difficult conditions and, and desert. And some of us have even been there. I haven't, but uh, for those of us who haven't, I found a couple pictures of Horeb that we can just uh, put up here. There's one. And you get a perspective of the size of it, given the size of the people here. And I have another one which also helps in the perspective because there's not only people, but there's uh, goats. And so that's where he went. And God, in effect, as we read in 1 Kings 19 and verse 10, says... Uh, um, sorry, a little earlier than that, in verse 9, it 
says, what doest thou here? In other words, uh, what have you come here for? Um, uh, why have you uh, left your work in Israel? And Elijah vents his frustration in verse 10. And the expression there that we read in verse 10, uh, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant and thrown down thy altars and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. He's disillusioned, and, and they seek my life to take it away. Well, the expression there, Lord God of hosts, is one of interest to us because uh, that's Yahweh Elohim Sabaoth, which is equivalent to saying the Lord God of armies. So it kind of implies that, you know, I'd really appreciate some militaristic intervention to help me out here, uh, to help straighten up things in Israel. Uh, and uh, in spite of the great miracle that's happened up in Carmel uh, that I thought was going to turn everything around, it just hasn't done it. Um, and so I've become depressed and, and I've kind of lost my hope. Well, the response I think we find is interesting. You remember how, uh, first of all, there's uh, a number of things happen to him on the mount. And God shows him that he's capable of all sorts of great power uh, by bringing up a huge wind that battered the mountain, broke parts of it, uh, and then an earthquake that shook it, shook everything there, and then a sort of a searing hot fire, a flame fire, uh, which could, any of which, uh, applied, achieved the same results as any militaristic type intervention. Uh, but what follows all that, as we remember in, uh, in verse 12, a still small voice, a still small voice spoke to him. Um, and so, it showed him that, you know, the effective, appropriate words spoken quietly and peacefully at the right time can be more effective than great noise and power and shaking and heat. And so, in effect, God said, get back to work in Israel. What are you doing here? Get doing what you've been doing. Um, and by the way, you aren't alone. There are 7,000 others who have not followed Baal. Still a small remnant, you know, of the hundreds of thousands who, who lived there, but a substantial number. And by the way, when you go back, here's a few assignments for you. Anoint the king over Syria, anoint the king over Judah, and pick Elisha to be your successor. And so he did. Well, at least he picked Elisha to be his successor, and uh, the others were eventually anointed, not by him, though. Uh, so in 1 Kings 19, 19 and 20, we have that call of Elisha. So he departed thence, and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat. He's now uh, built his hope back up, his confidence, and he headed back. Found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he with the 12th. And Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow thee. And he said unto him, Go back, for what have I done to thee? Now, I take it that Elisha hadn't been, Elijah hadn't been thinking an awful lot about 
his successor. And that probably Elisha wouldn't have been the one he would have picked anyway on his own, uh, even if he knew him. After all, you have to imagine that Elijah had been out of the country for three and a half years. He'd so lost touch with everybody pretty well. Um, and it seems that within days when he, after he'd come back to the land, was the contest at Mount Carmel. Carmel. So he wasn't really around to find out much about who were believers and who weren't. And many of them that were uh, had gone underground to stay alive and and he just wasn't very well connected with folks. And in fact, the fact that he was given specific details about Elisha in the 16th verse of this chapter, when he was told to anoint him to be prophet in thy room, he was told that Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mahola. Well, if he'd already known Elisha, he may not have needed such specific details and directions as to how to go and find him. Abel Mahola is located uh, by the Jordan River, in the River Valley. Now, the problem is, there's disagreement as to where it is on which side. One of the maps I've got shows it on the west side, and the other shows it on the east side. And not that it matters a lot, but we'll just show you the, the two locations here. Uh, there's one, not far from Tishbe, where uh, Elijah came from. Oops, wrong map. There's the other on the west side. I think what's more interesting than its location is probably the the meaning of the word, uh, Abel Malhola. Um, as in all, most all Hebrew words, they have meanings, and it means meadow of the dance. Uh, must have been a pleasant place to grow up in. And so we have a young man there who seems to have come from a fairly different background than Elijah. Uh, Elijah came from a more hardened background, uh, more of a loner, and we take it from what we read here that the family farm of Elisha was quite large. I mean, after all, they had 12 yoke of oxen plowing together at once. Uh, it also tells us that after the 40-some-odd days that Elijah had been away down to Horeb, that things were getting back to normal in the land. They're out plowing. Uh, the rains had come. Things are getting back to normal, um, and it was worth sowing seed. So after the drought and the difficulties of three and a half years, to have been out with 12 yoke of oxen kind of tells you something about the family estate that Elisha came from. Um, it would appear to me that... Uh, it was quite the nice farm, good size, uh, maybe even had servants. Where would they get all the people to uh, have 12 yoke of oxen plowing all at once? Uh, and a good sized land. So how many oxen are in 12 yoke? Is that 12 oxen or 24? Yoke is usually two, isn't it? So I think it was 24. Quite a number of animals. And it seems he'd lived a different life than Elijah's, and, and that's where you might have said he might have not been the first choice that Elijah would have made to replace him. Because, you know, as we all are, we tend to, likes tend to pick those who are similar. And I don't think they were all that similar in many ways. And we see later in this... Uh, uh, if we read more in Kings, 
their, their temperaments were a little different as well. Um, and it, it brings us around to some thoughts we would have about ourselves today. Uh, God calls those to the truth, you know, that uh, we might never have thought of or, or, or uh, might have selected uh, by our appearance or their appearance to us or their perspective that we would take of them. Um, we would never have thought of connecting them or would have selected them themselves. But God calls unto those who he sees, unto him who he sees as fit. And we're blessed to have the diversity among us to be able to work together. Uh, and so Elijah finds Elisha plowing. And uh, he's in the last position of those twelve. And from my understanding of plowing, not having a whole lot of farming background, that's probably the most responsible position of all of them. Uh, because he was like the watchdog, watching the rest of them ahead of him to make sure their lines were all straight, and also steering a true course himself. And he wasn't just sitting around meditating, uh, letting the servants and the rest of the family do all the work. He was a worker. And it reminds us of uh, what Brother David has been talking about. Those who Jesus called were workers. Uh, you know, fishermen, for example. Not just folks sitting around meditating. Now, it's pretty obvious, I think, that Elisha had heard of the contest at Mount Carmel and heard of Elijah. And he may even have been there and seen him. But when Elijah came up upon him, I wonder whether he really knew who Elisha was. Probably asked a few questions and had them point him out before he, he threw his coat or his mantle on him. And the mantle was symbolic of his position, of Elijah's position. And we have a, an artist's concept of that event here. I thought it was kind of interesting how the how the uh, artist um, put a headband around Elisha, and so he uh, he didn't get into the controversy that as to whether he had hair or not had hair. Uh, <laughs> uh, now, some have suggested in this. In this conversion, I'm sorry, in this call that we read, that uh, um, Elisha hesitated in taking up the challenge. You know, he said, uh, "Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and mother, and so on." And the argument that they make sometimes is, "Whoever has put their hand to the plow and turns back," you know, the quotation that Jesus made. Um, well. I don't think that's a good application of uh, Jesus' perspective when he said that. Uh, it seems to me that I, Elisha was making a reasonable request, and he was actually falling in line with the fifth commandment to honor his father and mother. And all he wanted to do was say goodbye before leaving his home and his family and his responsibilities and uh, thank them for all they'd done for him, that sort of thing. Uh, but he also was turning his back on the comfort and the wealth of the family farm. And so many years later, speaking of wealth, you remember when he cured Naaman of leprosy. Naaman came with all sorts of gifts um, and uh, wealth that he was going to offer to Elisha for curing him. What did Elisha do? No thank you. Uh, refused the wealth. Worldly goods were not a priority to him. Good lesson for us. 
Unfortunately, they were a priority to Elisha's servant Gehazi at the time, who chased after Naaman after he left with his gifts and, and said, look, uh, give me some of these things. And, and uh, he not only got them, but he got an extra gift. Uh, he was gifted with Naaman's leprosy as an added bonus. So there's some thoughts for us on chasing after, uh, after wealth and worldly goods and gifts. So, but let's go back to this call of, uh, of Elisha. It's a little strange in a sense for someone to walk right up, uh, as Elijah did, and put his mantle on Elijah, Elisha and then just keep on going. Walk on. Don't you think? <laughs> Elisha had to chase after him to, uh, to catch up with him to start a conversation. And to get agreement, at least, that he could go back and, and see his family. And Elijah agreed, of course, uh, saying, in effect, you know, go back, but remember... I read those into the, the expression there, and I think in other translations and versions, and you can pick that uh, those ideas up. And so what do we see here that indicates that he was cutting his tithe and ready to truly move on? Uh, well, he killed the very oxen that he'd been plowing with. And he used their yokes, a yoke, to uh, cook them for a, a farewell dinner for everyone. So what's, it, what's that? What's about that? Well... The destruction of his own oxen, maybe his favorites, uh, and his own yoke indicated that his career as a farmer was over. He wasn't coming back to use those oxen as a yoke again. They're gone. Uh, he could have killed other animals. He could have used other firewood, but he didn't. And I don't think it was an accident that he chose to use his own uh, yoke and his own oxen. And then he changed roles. It would seem from the size of the group that was there that they had servants, as we've indicated earlier, and Elisha probably had servants that helped take care of him. And now he was changing and becoming the equivalent to Elijah's servant or his apprentice. And so it was even said that of him in, in Second Kings, if we go to the third chapter, verse 11, partway through, when they were looking around for a prophet of the Lord and they found Elisha and they said, here's Elisha, the son of Shaphat, which poured water on the hands of Elijah. In other words, he was like a servant to Elijah. And how long was he, in effect, in training uh, before Elijah was taken away? We don't know. But some time passed. And let me go through a little bit of chronology with you here with respect to that. Here's that uh, chronology that we had up before where we have Elijah here. And uh, Elisha here, and there's some overlap period. And the uh, creators of this were quite diplomatic because they didn't draw vertical lines. They drew lines like this, so you can't really tell their perspective on what, when things started and stopped. And, and of course, we don't have exact details, so it's probably better to do it that way. But there's the sort of time frame that we're looking at. Uh, and some of the things that happened before the transition occurred. Let's just quickly uh, quickly run by. Uh, time was passing. Uh, the Syrians invaded from the north and were defeated a few times by Ahab after Elijah and Elisha came together and worked together. Ahab and Jezebel 
took Naboth's vineyard that we talked about earlier in the week, which was next to the palace in Jezreel by treachery. There was peace in, uh, in Israel between the Syrians and uh, Israel for three years, counting all the time. Uh, then there was another war with the Syrians in which Ahab was killed, as was prophesied by Elijah. And then Ahaz, or Ahaziah, Ahab's son, reigned in his stead for a short time until he fell through uh, some lattice from an upper floor in the palace in Samaria. Maybe this was that ivory house that we talked about earlier in the week. And, his event and eventually his injuries killed him. And then Jehoram, his brother, Ahab's other son, reigned in his stead in Israel. So that's kind of a fast forward. All that happened while Elijah and Elisha were together. Um, probably ten years, something like that. A long apprenticeship. And so then we come to the transition time between Elijah and Elisha, as recorded in Second Kings chapter 2. By some manner, uh, Elijah and Elisha, as well as a number of others at that time, called those others called sons of the prophets, uh, knew that it was time for Elijah to be taken away. Uh, in a similar way that Moses was taken away and removed. And let's just look at Second Kings 2 and read some of the first part of that chapter. And it came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And Elijah said unto Elisha, Tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Bethel. And Elisha said unto him, as the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophet that were at Bethel came forth to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he said, Yea, I know it. Hold ye your peace. And Elijah said unto him, Elisha, tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Jericho. And he said, As the Lord liveth, and as my, thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets that were at Jericho came to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he answered, Yea, I know it. Hold ye your peace. And Elijah said unto him, Tarry, I pray thee, here, for the Lord hath sent me to Jordan. And he said, as the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And the two went on. Um, and fifty men of the sons of the prophets, sons of the prophets that we have seen a couple times, uh, went and stood by afar off, to view afar off, and they stood by Jordan. And Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together and smote the waters, and they were divided hither and thither, so that they too went over on dry ground. And it came to pass, when they were gone over, that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I, uh, before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. And he said, Thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken away from thee, it shall be so unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. And it came to pass, as they still went on and talked, that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and parted them both asunder, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. So Elijah and Elisha had set out on their last trip from Gilgal down to Bethel and then on to Jordan, on to Jericho, sorry, and then finally Jordan. Um, now, there's a bit of controversy that we might go over as to where this Gilgal was. Uh, not that it's all that important, but... Oops, wrong map. Sorry. Uh, one of the 
One of the locations of Gilgal is right there. Uh, and that's, uh, that's one of three Gilgals that we have in Scripture. Uh, the other two are not shown on this map, but uh, the one that I think is most, uh, uh, most useful is up in the north, a little bit west of Shiloh. And one of the reasons I think that is that the route in which they, they went, it said uh, that when they left Gilgal in verse 2, they went down to Bethel. Well, you can go down to Bethel from a little bit west of Shiloh, Bethel being here, and then, uh, but you can't do it, you can't go down from Gilgal because it's uphill to go over here. So that's just a, a small comment that might be helpful in this process. That the, the Gilgal that most people think of is probably not the one meant here. Um, so we see some things about this that are indicative. If that was truly the location of where they left, up by Shiloh, down here and over here, and so on, and eventually out somewhere to the east of Jordan. The map indicates to us that that might have been a journey of about 40 miles. So what do you think about a 40-mile trip with an old fellow, Elijah? What's it remind you of, of someone else who was taken away in a somewhat similar way? Uh, doesn't it remind you of uh, a little bit of Moses, who was not dim in his eyes or weak physically, right up until the point that he was taken away. And it seems that that would be the case here with Elijah as well, in good mental and physical condition. Uh, quite able to make that trip, and sharp mentally. Some of the things he'd said here were uh, very intuitive and, and smart. Uh, in fact, you begin to wonder as to what was in Elijah's mind when he, in effect, tried to lose him? Tried to lose Elijah three times. Tried to lose Elisha three times. Uh, each time they went, he, uh, he tried to lose him. And all I would have for you is a couple of suggestions. One being that you know, maybe he was wanting to be alone when he was taken away, as was Moses. That's one. Uh, the other might be that he was testing Elisha, and this is the one that I kind of like a little better, testing Elisha to be sure that he was ready and committed to take over, uh, to take over his room, as we've read earlier. And in fact, we can see that he was, that Elisha was, because he wasn't going to be put off. You know, he said three times, as the Lord liveth and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. You're not going to shake me. I'm here. I'm with you. Um, I'm ready to take over. You remember anybody else who said something like that? A little bit different perspective, and it was a woman. Uh, yeah, Ruth. She said the same sort of thing. I will not leave thee. I'm with you. Uh, your people will be my people, and so on. So three times Elijah tried to leave Elisha behind and shake him, both in Gilgal and Bethel and Jericho. Uh, and the answer was always the same. Three times that he was tested. Remember anybody else who was tested three times? Uh, Peter. Peter was tested three times and he failed. Elisha didn't. And so they two went on. Two friends, uh, partners, I, I guess we'd, we'd call it, um, different characters who had come to respect each other and had worked well together for years, probably a good ten years, each knowing that the end was upon them. And so we, came to the, we come to the crossing of the Jordan. And here's some artist concept of, of what that was. 
um, just so you have something else to look at than me. Um, and when they came to the Jordan near Jericho, as we read, Elijah sort of rolled up his mantle and smote the waters, and it parted, just as it had parted some time back, about 560 years before, when the nation had crossed from the other direction. And might we say there could be some symbolic things in this? There's lots of things we could think of, aren't there? Uh, one of the ones I like is what the Jordan itself was symbolic of. The Jordan was a river that started up in a higher area in a nice fresh lake uh, and went downhill and as it went on it picked up more dirt and mire and uh, went down and down and down until it ended up flowing out ends up flowing out into the Dead Sea where there's no life and the concentration of all the things that had been picked up during the flow are, have been increased to the point where only death, nothing can live. Um, don't you think that's a little bit uh, symbolic of mortality, of life itself? Um, And then the power of God was demonstrated here through the, the mantle. And by hitting the water, that downward flow was stopped. And we could understand in that, you know, that God is able to stop mortality. And in fact, we're looking for even more than that, a reversal of mortality. Um, just an interesting concept and a little analogy to, to think about there. Um, so, in verse 10 of chapter 2, Elijah asked him what he would have him to do, and he said, I'd like a double portion. Um, and, of course, that wasn't in his to give. And he said, if you keep your eyes fixed on me, though, it can happen. It will happen. There's some thoughts in that for us as well. You know, what do we need to keep our eyes fixed on? Uh, you know, the mark of our heart and our just as Elisha kept his eyes fixed on Elijah. And so we think to ourselves, what was this double portion that he was asking about? And I think it ties in very well with some of the things that our brother Jerry's been talking about in the inheritance. Uh, you know, a double portion was that that was given to the firstborn. And so, he really truly was committed to be Elijah's successor. Uh, not only the double portion implied uh, that, but it also implied that the individual was leader of the household was the spiritual leader of the household. And Brother Jerry has been mentioning some of these things as well. Uh, and that, I think, was what he was, was interested in. It wasn't like he was interested in wealth and more worldly goods. Uh, we've already seen that that wasn't a priority for him. So they continued on in verse 11. The question there was, is walking and walking and talking uh, until a world, uh, the horses of fire and chariot of fire came and the whirlwind. And we have an artist's conception of that too. And I put this up here to challenge you a bit. What's wrong with that? Yeah. Shows you how easy it is to uh, misconstrue things. What do we read there? Um, 
There appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. That's not what the picture shows, does it? Uh, uh, and I just picked that to sort of show you that the concepts sometimes that we get fixed in our minds, it, he didn't ride on the chariot. It doesn't say that. It parted them. Uh, so since that's wrong, I'll get it off there quickly. <laughs> uh, sometimes you don't want to fix bad ideas in your mind. Um, so we're coming to the end here. Let me just summarize. Um, Elijah was caught away by a whirlwind and the chariots of fire uh, and horses of fire separated them. And these seem to be representations of God's power throughout the earth that occasionally were able to be seen by individuals and a privileged few. And we'll pick up on this and end with this, where Elisha, a little while later in his life, when they were out to get him, in first, sorry, um, Second Kings... Uh, they were out to get him and they surrounded the city in which he was in with chariots and horses and when his servant verse 15 the man of God was risen up early and gone forth behold a host compassed the city both with horses and chariots and his servant said unto him alas my master how shall we do and he, that is Elisha, said, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And then Elisha prayed and said, Lord, open, and Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened his eyes, and the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. And so the power of God, as represented in those, were with him, uh, and he was able to see it, and it protected and directed things uh, in his life and worked out God's will and plan at that time. And so, you know, these are words for us to take to heart too. Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And let's... Uh,